I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what if you could suddenly understand every single language on Earth? Identify any object or living thing around you with nothing but a glance. See exactly how a new outfit might look on your body before trying on a single piece of clothing. What if you could customize your entire world the way you would your home? Our guest this week bears the good news of the coming augmented reality revolution and tackles some of the hazards that may occur when we can all create our own individually tailored realities. David Rose is an MIT lecturer, digital product innovator, six-time entrepreneur, and expert on ambient and spatial computing. He owns the seminal patent on photo sharing, built an AI company focused on computer vision, and was VP of vision technology at Orby Parker. David is known for translating complex technologies into delightfully intuitive new products and consulting with businesses on digital disruption. Previously, David wrote Enchanted Objects, a book about design, human desire, and the Internet of Things. Today, we'll be talking about his most recent book, Supersight, what augmented reality means for our lives, our work, and the way we imagine the future. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, it is great to have you. Now, to look at most people's resumes, the through line can seem fairly obvious. She was a paralegal, then she went to law school, then she was a lawyer at a small firm, then a large one, now she's a partner. I would say pretty linear. But I'd like to contrast that with your own career, which at least on the surface appears less linear. I ask you in the audience for a little bit of forgiveness here, David, as this list is somewhat abridged. But I believe you started as a software engineer in speech recognition and robotics, then went on to found Interactive Factory in 92, which is a design firm specializing in museum exhibits and language learning CDs, among other things. Five years later, you founded a Folio, a digital photo sharing company. In 2001, you founded Ambient Devices, which pioneered the idea that all sorts of objects, not just traditional computers, could communicate with and work for us. In 2008, you headed a company that focused on the pharmaceutical industry and medication adherence. Then you were CEO of Ditto Labs, focusing on a visual recognition engine for online photos. Then you were the VP of vision technology for Orby Parker, which we mentioned earlier. Currently, you're the co-founder of Clearwater AR, quote, the first augmented reality experience for the water world, end quote, and chief technology officer of Home Outside, a company that allows you to visualize your home's yard redesigned with augmented reality with your phone's camera. So to start us off, David, I'd love to anchor our talk in what guides you and motivates you personally. To crib once again from journalist Amanda Ripley, which I seem to do often, what's the understory of your career? Well, thanks for the overview. I mean, I think my through line is really kind of where humans meet pioneering technology and being really fascinated on how it impacts the what we do and how we learn and how we interact with others. I mean, if you go back to some of the early work I did at the MIT Media Lab on, I worked in Guitar Hero and a project with Lego called Lego Mindstorms, which is a robotic invention kit. And both of those are really innovations, not so much in technology, but more about how to change the interface to make music more accessible, make robotics more accessible and more playable, help people get into sharing photos through the internet with other people back when that was a, a laborious process. <laughs> you had to upload things you know, to an FTP site, and we tried to just make it super easy to create albums and 
collections to share with others. I guess I'm captivated by what's the next technology and how to make it something that you know appears simple and magical that doesn't require a lot of engineering to get into it and benefit from it. Story that immediately pops to mind. I was a bit obsessed with Steve Jobs when he was alive. And there was this one story, I'm sure you're familiar with it, about the first iPod and one of the decrees that Jobs gave to his software engineers that he never wanted a user to be more than three clicks away from being able to play a song. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the focus of Apple, and I think what is Apple's legacy, is the reduction of friction. And it seems like that's what motivates a lot of your work, if I'm looking at the through line of what you're talking about right now. Yeah, exactly. For example, one of the projects that I'm working on right now is to make shopping at the grocery store easier if you have allergies or you know, special food requirements like kosher. And so we're using the fact that everyone's holding a phone as you're shopping, probably already. And if you point the phone using computer vision, you can recognize a package. So let's say a snack food. And then we will show you, we'll pull the data for that package so that it shows nutritional value summarized as a number and sustainability of the product and the packaging I'll summarize as another number on another corner of the package and then show whether it meets your allergy profile and then show the financial value of that particular instantiation of food. And then we'll show you a better choice. We'll just change the package that you're holding to look like the package that you should be holding. <laughs> so then you can scan the shelf and find the better choice for you based on personalization, cloud data, 5G networks. Like We're kind of using all of these capabilities, but making an interface that just does something kind of magical, which it transforms the thing you're holding into the thing you should be holding. <laughs> so those are the kind of moments that I get excited about in terms of designing new technologies when you can kind of synthesize and fuse a lot of capabilities into something that feels just instant and magical in terms of the user experience. Magical. That's a great word. In a 2014 TEDx talk on Enchanted Objects, which was your previous book, you talk about the magical objects of mythology and fairy tales, the shoes that allow us to fly, the vat of wine that replenishes itself. Inspired by Frodo's elvish blade that glows blue when orcs are nearby from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, while you were working at Ambient Devices, you created an umbrella with a ring of blue LED lights around the handle that shone when rain <laughs> was imminent. So were these stories ones that you simply reached back for as an adult once you were working on these products? Or did they play a role in inspiring your career from when you were a child? I think I've always realized that fairy tales are kind of a good litmus test or touchstone for revealing things that people want, for revealing things that have been desires, age-old desires forever, before technology could ever satisfy them. So I kind of became interested in this idea of kind of reverse engineering innovation process to first look for these age-old wishes, like the wishes to know everything, or the wishes for omniscience, or the wishes to know like the mind of another person, to be able to kind of see into someone's soul, if you will, kind of the wishes for a telepathy, or immortality, or teleportation. To me, those became really good places to start, both for myself and also for my teaching. So I taught a, a workshop for a few years in Copenhagen in the interaction design program. 
at a school in Copenhagen. And I co-taught it with a magician from London. And he came over with a large list of all of the kind of tropes of magic, like to make something invisible, to make something magically move. And it was really interesting to kind of send people off to Ikea, <laughs> have them buy curtains or cabinetry or coffee table, and then try to kind of take one of the persistent human wishes that we all have and then try to imbue this object with some way of satisfying that wish. So students made things like cabinets that magically replenish themselves or tables that would help the conversation by showing your Facebook photos or pillows that would show you the state of a distant loved one so that you could whisper through the pillow. Students came up with all kinds of great stuff, but I found that like magic and everyday objects paired together created a lot of fertile ground for innovation. And I think that idea of wish fulfillment, the idea of being able to take those fantasies of old and bring them with us into the 21st century leads us really well into your most recent book, Super Sight, which is about augmented reality and so much more. And it lays out in detail what this future might look like. And the book's nine chapters each expound on how this technology or rather intersection of technologies might benefit a different facet of our lives from personal human interactions to customized shopping experiences to personalized medicine. Our time today is obviously too short to cover all of it. So I'd like to focus on three broad topics, some benefits of Supersight, some potential hazards, or to put it <laughs> in terms of magical items, the potential curse of the monkey's paw, mm. <laughs> and a bit about future casting, which I found so interesting. Mm. Let's start with defining what we'll be discussing for our audience. So when most people outside of the field think of augmented reality, I think they're likely thinking of something you wear like a pair of glasses that shows you a heads-up display, perhaps like the discontinued Google Glass of yesteryear, or something you hold like an iPhone that uses its camera and sensors to show a tiny little dinosaur roaming around on your desk. But Supersight, a term you coined, encompasses so much more than that. In the book, you write, quote, Supersight is this decade's convergence technology, end quote, something that has inherited and combines 30 years of innovation. So for our listeners, David, what is Supersight? What are the technologies that combine to create it? And how are those technologies working together to create this new transcendent category? Fundamentally, the field of what roboticists call computer vision, that is teaching computers to see what is in front of you, whether it's a self-driving car or a lawnmower or a Roomba that's just bumping into walls, like all of these, the ability to project a field of view that's understandable by a computer is kind of half of what I'm talking about with Supersight. So computer perception is half of the capability that has come about because of deep neural networks and cloud computing and the apps that allow you to like identify bugs and leaves and and other things in our world. So perception is kind of half of it. And the other one is the ability for a computer to change our perception of the world by blending what we see every day through our eyes, through often through glasses, with a projection that's a synthesized view that a computer is generating. Ray-Ban partnered with a company now called Meta to create some glasses that are now out that have two 4K cameras that are pointed forward like your eyes at the edges of your glasses. And those are doing kind of half of the job because those head-mounted cameras allow a computer to see what you see essentially through your eyes. 
But what we haven't seen really popularized yet is the other half, which is to use something called an optical combiner, which will allow you to see a label on top of something or the ability to see into and through an object or allow you to see the history of a thing or the future of a thing or anything you could kind of imagine blending with the world. And actually, what I really love about the book, one of many things, and I highly recommend this book to anyone listening, if you couldn't tell, I'm endorsing it by interviewing the author. But there is this app that you created that goes along with the book. And it uses my iPhone's camera to basically you point it at certain photos that are marked by a symbol in the book. And it turns those black and white photos into either full color images or videos or diagrams that just become so much more than the photos printed on the page. It's a really great peek at what something like SuperSight, you know, in its very rudimentary stages might eventually look like. I think it's just a great way to visualize what you're talking about as you're reading the book. I'm working on an article just about developing the, this kind of app for books experience, which is how will the metaverse change books? You know, how will it change print? <laughs> I hope those mediums don't go away, but I think they will be augmented. For example, we'll have like a Harry Potter kind of vision of rather than static images, those images will be animated or be movies within the book, or it will be read to you kind of a zigzag experience between an audiobook and a book that you read, but you could toggle back and forth between those easily. I built a lot of diagrams. There are a lot of diagrams in the book, and I tried to do kind of what I would do when I'm teaching, which is kind of a chalk talk. You know, I would draw a framework and then explain each element as I put them up onto a whiteboard or a chalkboard. And so I added some of those as well. And then there's some Easter eggs that you kind of have to discover. I think there's an episode of The Simpsons someplace. I can tell you which page number if you want. <laughs> but there's this inevitable collision of mediums that's happening where podcasts and vlogs and books and YouTube and you know all of these things are combining. But I think there's, there's still some design work to be done to make how you access and link between all of those versions of the mediums, something that feels just more easy and transparent, you know, and even links to like things that are live, you know, you'd like for a book to feel up to date. I created a set of design principles for augmented reality, and I didn't finish them when we were going to print for the book. So I just decided, well, that's okay. I don't have to finish them. I'll just create a page that you point your phone at. I'll finish them by the time it prints. <laughs> so you can point your phone at the end of that particular chapter on design principles. And they do appear now, but I hadn't finished them at that point. So there's an ability to use each medium for kind of what it's best for. I think it's great that you created a software update for a physical book. One of the things that you write in chapter one that really stuck with me is, quote, naming is the first kind of knowing, end quote. And I think that's so true. I mean, what are some of the first things that we teach young children? We teach them the names of things. And you have this hypothetical walk in the woods in the not-so-distant future, which I think perfectly illustrates what you call the first gift of SuperSight. And what I think overlaps very well with what many of us currently use our phones for. I really want to try and conjure in the mind of the listener what the big difference is between, say, being on a walk in the woods with your phone and you know seeing a bird or taking a photo of a bird and then trying to find the name of it, and what that same hike in the woods would be like with a pair of super sight glasses. We spent a lot of time in the woods. My dad was a doctor, and I felt like whenever we went 
for a walk in the woods, there were many stories that were kind of embedded in the walk that we were taking, whether it's this is the type of tree this is, whether it's a old growth forest or whether the birch trees were about to be overtaken by the fir trees and those are going to be overtaken by hardwoods. Being able to know that the reason that the hawk is able to kind of pick out mice from a kilometer away is because they can see a different frequency. They can see the urine trails of the mice. So they they kind of have an evolutionary advantage. Learning about owls and how owls are so adapted to see in the dark and they They've lost the ability to orbit their eyes. They have to orbit their head. They have to turn their head because they're so adapted for that particular type of seeing. But there were so many things to learn and know about rocks and trees and the natural world that I kind of liken what we'll get from the ability to superimpose information into our field of view in a positive sense is the ability to have that kind of expert guide with us should we want that. Not only walking through the woods, but getting a docent tour of the museum or the city as a museum, kind of the history of anything that we walk past or through, or an expert on our shoulders that helps us make decisions when we're doing something complicated at work or at a hobby. And so I feel like in a very positive sense, we will all get kind of an expertise upgrade and the world will get a lot more interesting because it will just be a lot more textured and layered as we are able to kind of have a system that can see what we see and maybe even infer that we're interested or confused or need some more stimulation <laughs> at that point. Like we're we're driving and falling asleep, so maybe we should know something about the landscape that we're driving through in order to stimulate us. I'm excited about that aspect, definitely. And I just feel like that's the first of nine things that we'll get out of this technology. <laughs> oh, yes. The idea of just having the smartest person on any topic with you at any time, just kind of in your ear and in your eyes, so to speak, giving you tips and lessons and insight into the world around you is so fascinating. There's this anecdote you share about an army colonel that you met. And you contrasted his primary job in Washington to what a pair of super sight glasses might afford us at social gatherings in the future. I'd love for you to share a little bit of that with the listener, because I think we've probably all been there, <laughs> right? Where we're at a business event or a social gathering or something, and there's either someone that we know we should know more about or someone that we met one time two years ago, and they remember our name, but we don't remember theirs. And so how would super sight help us there? Right. Well, in addition to knowing the names of objects around us and how things work, the ability to recognize faces will be something this technology is very good at. And that will help us in terms of not only remembering names, but also remembering salient details or being able to replay a little bit of the past conversation that we had. And I think probably a lot of startups that are pursuing this idea, and I have a failed startup that pursued this as well, but there's this notion in information theory of the least common commonality. So if you run into somebody at a party and you figure out that you are the only two people in the room that have, I don't know, let's say kite surfing in common or scuba diving in common or whatever your bizarre hobby is, if somebody else has a bizarre hobby that creates rapport and interest and doesn't have to be exactly the same thing, but it could be like you both grew up in a small town or went to a small liberal arts college or both travel to a place a lot of other people have traveled to. So I think one of the services that'll be kind of revealed through Supersight is these kind of conversational topics that will really bring people together and spur 
more interesting conversations that you might otherwise land on randomly. And that will be one of the things that is kind of orbiting over the people that you encounter in a cocktail party, like their names, the things that they're most passionate about, and kind of reasons for connecting. So I, th- I think that'll be very positive. It'll be kind of like the exquisite party host that's able to kind of bring any two people together and get them going on something that's interesting to both of them. And I can only imagine what the ramifications would be for romance and dating. I mean, I'm on an online dating app right now, and once you have that kind of information at your fingertips, you wish that you had it when you were out and about, you know, like you're at a coffee shop and you see a cute girl or a cute guy or something. And you're like, man, I wonder if she's into the same kind of books that I'm into, Mm. or I wonder if he kite surfs because I'm really hoping I can learn how to kite surf and maybe he could teach me, you know, because you can see that in online dating apps, you know, I have a passion for hiking or whatever it is. Right. But I can imagine if you could see that in real time, And you see that someone's maybe checking you out from across the bar and above their head, you know, it shows that they like the same comedian that you do, or they're from the, like you said, the same small town, like that ability to make that human interaction based on a shared knowledge of likes or dislikes could be really magical. Yeah. And some people won't want to reveal very much about their past. And I think that will be certainly a profile setting that people can choose to reveal or hide but a lot of times the people the reason that people get together in bars or business conferences because they're looking for other people in order to have either a commonality or you know she is looking for money she is investing money she's hiring he's looking for work you know like sometimes there are a lot of complementary interests that could be revealed in this kind of way and i think it's interesting to note that in both of these examples of both the walk in the woods and also the changing human interaction you know, the data may be available, already available in both of those settings, right? There's already Wikipedia, there's already LinkedIn, like there's already all of those data services. What's different about Supersite is that it is revealed in context and kind of spatially anchored into the world around us and not something that we have to go kind of hunt and peck at a smartphone or laptop. Right. It seems like the biggest benefit or one of the biggest benefits of SuperSight is that it's anticipatory. Right. It knows what you need before you know you need it. Right. And it's doing a search, like a Google search every second on like what you're looking at, what decision you need to make. And so in that way, hopefully it's it's kind of taking all of this information that's already accessible and making it much more useful. I want to touch on a potential downside of SuperSight. And you really dig into what you call the six main potential hazards of SuperSight, because obviously with any new technology or innovation, there's always going to be some potential for downside. And there was one that kind of came to mind while I was at a local coffee shop yesterday. So there's one that I frequent either by myself or with my dog, Charlie, almost daily. And so I've come to know the names of the employees and vice versa. Maybe you have something similar where you live, David. And I've also learned some of the details of their lives and their plans. And there was this instance a few weeks ago where one of the baristas mentioned a concert she was excited to go to that weekend. But I didn't see her for maybe like a week after that. And when I saw her again, and I asked her how the concert went, I could see in her reaction that my remembering it affected her. Mm. And so I think that there's something that happens in our minds and, you know, to get poetic, our hearts, I suppose you could say, when we know that we've been considered because we feel valued. And so Perhaps I'm just aging myself here, you know, the rolling tide of technology is coming our way anyway, but I'm not sure my comment 
would have had the same effect on her if she knew that my glasses were telling me to ask her about the concert. Right, right. How do we balance that? I mean, this phenomena kind of reminds me of like Facebook tells everybody what everybody's birthday is. So, so if somebody sends you a Facebook message, that almost has no cultural salience anymore. <laughs> and even like sending you a text message or giving you a call and saying, oh, like, oh, hey, it just, you know, it occurred to me that it was your birthday. I'm like, well, how exactly did it occur to you? <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of these things that make the way that we interact as humans kind of more streamlined you're right, takes away the effort that would have needed to be exerted to, you know, send somebody a holiday card. If you kind of know like, oh, you've probably got my address from last year and it probably took you about four and a half minutes to send out your 122 holiday cards this year, you know? (laughs) So it doesn't have, I think we have to do other things in order to show that effort was expended, (laughs) you know, on that, on that interaction. I do feel like my hazard number one for human interaction is, that I think we can take for granted the fact that these glasses, we will all want to see different things. You know, you will want to see, you'll be interested in architectural history, and I will not care about that at all. And I will, you know, want to see more information about food and where to eat and maybe things about my day, you know, kind of painted on the environment as I walk through. So when we pass each other, or when we have a conversation about what the world looks like, we will be talking about different things. This will be a bubble filter problem that's even bigger than Facebook that, you know, we'll all be trapped to some extent in our own personal view of the world. And it will make just as streaming services have made the chatter about what did you watch last night on TV, because everybody watched something different we'll have less in common to talk about. And that personalization will, in a sense, kind of isolate us more into our own bubbles. And I don't know exactly what to do about that from a design perspective. I have ideas of how to sync up people's views through a bump gesture or some, there are probably some design solutions to that, but that seems like one of the inevitable downsides of personalization, which is great, but also just having common shared cultural experiences, which will be limited. Yes, I would say that that probably out of all of the hazards, and there are a few that alarm me, of course, like surveillance and whatnot, but I would say the one that really spooks me, (laughs) so to speak, Hmm. is the fact that it would only increase what is already kind of a rolling tide of balkanization, which is happening in social media and even in the real world. I mean, people are segmenting themselves politically in neighborhoods more now than they were several decades ago. Republicans and Democrats are less likely to live as next door neighbors because they are intentionally segregating themselves from one another. And you see this on social media as well. I mean, you can block out entire keywords in Twitter and anything that contains that keyword won't be delivered to you. And you talk about this a bit in Supersight to great and horrific uh, effect. (laughs) There is this episode of Black Mirror for anyone listening called White Christmas, which stars John Hamm. And I'm going to spoil the ending, but I figure it's been around for 10 years, so warning. (laughs) His character is punished at the end of the film by getting an implant that literally makes every other person that he sees look like visual and audio static. So he can travel around the world. He is a free man. He can walk the streets of his city, but he can't see or hear anyone. And you talk about how in Supersight, people could potentially voluntarily do this themselves. You know, if they didn't want to see poverty in the streets of their city, they could literally have it so static would appear 
over people, objects, et cetera, extrapolate this outward, you can be like, all right, well, since I have all the data of what people's voting patterns are, or what their likes or dislikes on Facebook are, I just don't even want to see those people when I walk down the street. Diminished reality for the others. <laughs> Diminished reality, exactly. It's like you said, I don't know how to solve that problem, whether it's government regulation or whatnot, but, and I don't want to linger too long on it because I think the benefits of Supersight are so numerous, but it is something that stuck in my mind. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of these kind of negative consequences become more acute if you start to believe that we're going to be wearing these reality-changing glasses 24-7, or at least all waking hours. And I suspect that they'll be more like sunglasses, where mm. you know we can store them in certain situations. You want to wear the sunglasses, but in lots of other situations, you just wear your normal glasses. You know, Certainly, first generations won't be powered up for 10 hours of continuous bright light wear just because it's a technical challenge and optics challenge in order to make something that is brighter than what you see even outside. We're dealing with this now in, you mentioned earlier, this company Clearwater, mm -hmm. where we're making an AR experience for boaters so that you can basically see through the water. We have data elevation models, which look a little bit like topo maps. So if you've ever been in a clear bottom boat, you've kind of have that sense. So you put on these glasses or you hold up your phone and now you can see here's where the rocks are and here's where the fall off is where you might want to go fishing. And then we're even superimposing things like manatees and sharks and whales and wrecks and you know other things that you would want to see underwater. If somebody catches a fish and they scan it in 3D and they throw it back in, we kind of make it swim around there forever. <laughs> so, you know, it really gives you a real visceral sense of a world that you couldn't have seen before. City planners are doing this too, to kind of see through the asphalt into the infrastructure of the cities so to know where you can drill or where certain pipes are. But I think that's one of the interesting fantasies that we've had for a long time that we probably got from comic books, or I probably learned from comic books of the, like X-ray vision. If you have the data, you can superimpose the data in the world and allow people to kind of see through stuff. Yes, x-ray vision. We might not be able to become Superman, but we could have Supersight. Supersight is so much more than just wearables, though, and you detail this at length in the book. I'd love to speak about at least a little bit about planes of projection. Mm. So for the listener, if you've ever seen a Marvel film, you know, think of the 3D holograms that Tony Stark would reference and manipulate, or think of science fiction films like Minority Report. You write in the book, quote, this projected light augmentation is extraordinary because no glasses are required. The experience is shared, tangible input and immediate output are strongly coupled, and results are represented directly in context. A group of people gather around a model, move elements of a city around, and see the resulting cascade of consequences for this action, end quote. And you envision this working in tandem with super sight wearables like glasses that might display similar information. The projection is different. I mean, as opposed to like a glasses offer a very personal view that are the real world plus an information layer. Mm. But if you've been in a car with a backup camera, now almost every every new car that has a backup camera allows you to see a camera view of behind the car. And then mm -hmm. they superimpose over the camera view, like here's the trajectory of the car as you turn the wheel mm. and you can see how it changes and you can see whether you're going to encounter something or you can see it will put up a red line if you're going to hit something. You know, that's more of like a shared view of an AR experience. So that's a small screen based, like kind of heads up display type shared view. 
but the city planning project that you read a little excerpt from is using a data projector. So that's also AR in that we have a little model of the city and then there's a data projector that's hanging actually two that are tiled together that are hang- that are on the ceiling pointing down and they have an internal model of the model of the city and then can show you kind of the walkability score of the street as you decide to put in bike lanes or put in more parking or put in a supermarket there's a kind of a sim city like data model of the city And then you can see everybody gathered around this kind of hologram table is able to see the resulting city. It's funny because in popular media now, we have visions of this kind of hologram gather around table. I don't know if you remember from the movie Avatar or... Oh, yeah, yeah. What was another one of kind of the gather around? Oh, Westworld was another one. You you had this park and things happening to people in the park and you had like a little miniature view of that for the people running the park. Yes. So that's an AR view. Oh, can I just mention one more thing about the AR view? Of course. So I have some students that have a company now called Lumen that are making an AR flashlight which is really nice because it's also a shared view. So this is a looks like a flashlight is a data projector with a computer vision system on the front of it. If you're in a museum and you can shine it on hieroglyphics and it will paint them in with the same painting that they were painted with, but the museum curator doesn't feel comfortable repainting the the hieroglyphics or you take them into a building and you shine it on the wall. And if it has a building information model, inside or can download one from the cloud it can show you where the pipes run and where the electrical lines run so it puts things on top of the world as if they are transparent we just did something at a medical conference where you shine this lumen flashlight against someone's shoulder and it shows them what the shoulder replacement will look like and it tracks the shoulder using computer vision so that you get a real sense of as you rotate your shoulder around what the implant will do and how it attaches, which is a pretty cool kind of shared AR view. That is so cool. And this kind of planes of projection technology could enable it so that when you're indoors, let's say, you know, either in your own home or at a place of work, you could have the super sight technology without having to have glasses on all the time. Right, right. Because if these things are being projected onto your fridge or your wall and they're combined with gesture technology, it kind of frees you from having to have a wearable on. Yeah, I think that's where computing is going, is being more invisible and more more kind of woven into the fabric of our lives. I think that was a quote from Mark Weiser, who used to work at Xerox Park, who had this vision for ubiquitous computing that was, you know, kind of the success mode of technology is when it doesn't look like technology anymore. It either looks like fashion, like glasses or fashion more than they are perceived as technology, or it just looks like light bulbs. You know, it's kind of something we just take for granted. Do you see this kind of super sight technology completely supplanting things like enchanted objects or working in tandem with them? Because it seems like if it reaches a certain point, it could render a traditional modern enchanted object like an Alexa or a smart fridge or something obsolete. Or do you see these two things continuing to coexist? I was really inspired by the book by Kevin Kelly, who was a senior writer at Wired called What Technology Wants. And in that book, Kelly says, the way to think about the future of any category of technology is to look at a coral reef. And on a coral reef, there hasn't been like one fish that dominates the ecosystem. But instead, as you have more and more hundreds of years of evolution in the natural water world kingdom, 
you have more specialization, more complexity, and more diversification. So the fish and all of the marine life in a coral reef just has huge divergence. And if you look at a lot of other fairly old, quote, technology categories, like take the glasses we drink out of or the shoes that we put on our feet, those are both technologies. And is there just one type of glass that has come to be like the preferred thing for drinking everything out of? No, we've got like orange juice glasses and water glasses and wine glasses. And some people have like red wine, white wine. You have this huge blossoming of diversification. Same with shoes. Like we don't have one pair of shoes that rules them all. You know, following that, my prediction kind of is that we will have a variety of AR glasses. Like I already have AR swimming goggles and those have different features than the AR glasses that I have that are sunglasses for the boat experience. And those are different than the VR glasses that are more about surround. I think we're still going to have smartwatches. We're still going to have data projection. We're still going to have some form of tablets and some form of handheld small version of tablets, along with a variety of different projection technologies, both on our bodies, wearables, and also in the environment. And I think they'll all kind of know about each other. (laughs) And so hopefully there will be a service that kind of renders the information at the right resolution on the right device based on the context of whatever you're trying to get done. You know, Kevin Kelly wrote an essay that I read back in 2008 that had a huge impact on me as a a creator and, and a freelancer, which was the article called A Thousand True Fans and just had a huge impact on me and affected how I approached other creators I saw on the internet. And that idea of whatever the best product is for whatever the task is will win out and the marketplace will kind of sort itself out. I agree with that a great deal, but it seems to me like what is going to be necessary, and this is slightly adjacent, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, David, is even if all of these products exist independently of one another, right? Like let's say one thing is made by Apple, the other thing is made by Google, and then mm. you know Meta makes something else. And you can kind of already see this problem starting to form, which is that devices and software are oftentimes incompatible with each other because companies are incentivized to make walled gardens around their services. And the idea of a walled garden in a super site future seems totally incompatible. It seems like there would need to be some kind of negotiation or higher standard that everyone agrees to, some kind of neural net that is neutral that all of these different independent companies' products can communicate with and on. Because a future with a walled garden like we have now, where my Amazon Echo can't speak to my Apple Watch because they're two different products, it will create the very friction that SuperSight seeks to avoid. So how do we rectify those two things? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there will be ways for these things to talk together but only in certain levels of the stack, of the, of the information kind of communication stack. It was interesting that just in the last couple of weeks, the standards committees for IoT devices got together and tried to figure out, well, why aren't people really adopting smart home lighting and doorbells and security systems? And just to interject real quickly for the listener, IoT stands for the Internet of Things, right? Yes, And so even though all of these giant technology companies have created these confederacies or these balkanized islands of functionality, 
they did decide <laughs> that it's in their best interest to try to make the setup experience easier. So if you do have like a Philips lighting, you can more easily integrate with Google's Home Hub or Apple's Home Siri or with Alexa. I think there will be ways to kind of port your interests and your profiles you know, between kingdoms, <laughs> if you will. But there probably will be walled garden features that are that exist for competitive reasons. And I think that's probably fine. Like if you think about the world of automobiles, we agreed that they should be about, I don't know how wide cars are, what, six feet, seven feet? (laughs) Like there's a standard for width so that it fits on most roads unless you're a Hummer. But within that, you know, you can kind of do what you need to do as a car company. So I think we do need enough standards in terms of for example, how people gesture and what gestures mean. Right. So Microsoft has a bloom gesture, which if you kind of put your fingers together and then make kind of a flower spreading gesture in the upward direction, that's kind of like the home button in in the Microsoft HoloLens world. Mm. And I think it would be smart if you're meta to adopt the bloom gesture (laughs) so that as people get kind of comfortable using this technology, pinch and zoom, becomes kind of a standard and pinch and pivot and two finger tilt, you know, those kind of multi-finger gestures that we've become used to on on iThings and Android devices. We'll probably want the same kind of standards for gestures just so people feel fluent with the tech, but there probably will be other reasons how large companies kind of create their own ecosystem of devices that like Apple has done famously. Yes, a sort of universal sign language for technology. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of, on episode 27, I want to say, I had the head of LinkedIn's accessibility evangelism on, a gentleman by the name of Jenison Asuncion, who talks about and advocates for internet accessibility for people with various disabilities. And the promise of something like Supersight and its various incarnations is truly revolutionary for people with disabilities. And have you either during your time at MIT and seeing the projects coming out of their labs or just your experiences as an innovator and entrepreneur in the tech world, what are you seeing coming down the pike regarding things like Supersight and how they might benefit people with various kinds of disabilities? Yeah, I guess, first of all, I wouldn't call it disabilities because I think people just have different abilities. And I think it's a gradient of different abilities. So even the ability to, you know, highlight a road sign that is a long way away or that you can't see because you can't see through the fog, like those are vision abilities that pretty much anyone needs, not even old eyes, but one for people that have a hard time hearing, which is something that is a massive problem in the US. I mean, a massive problem worldwide. Oh, yes. There's a startup called Xander, who I'm an advisor to, and they're just focusing on what they call caption glass, which is just, it would be so nice to have captions on what other people are saying. And I don't know about you, but I've been watching TV with captions on for a long, <laughs> for a long time, kind of <laughs> since, since the West Wing. Just like some writers and some accents, you want to see the lyrics. You, you want to see what they're actually saying. Absolutely. And it's kind of a solved problem when it comes to the speech to text. What's not the solved problem is to have a microphone array that is directed towards the other person who you're looking at and not everybody else in the restaurant. And so you don't need captions on what you say, and you don't need captions on what 
somebody else who's sitting at another table that you're not looking at is saying, but the person of interest, you really want to see what they're saying. And you also, you may want some other cues too, like intonation or affect or, Mm. you know, other things that you could carry with a highlighting effect or different typography or, you know, sarcasm, for example. And so I think that's really exciting and something that could benefit a lot of people because hearing aids are still like $6,000, $4,000 for hearing aids, and they just don't work well in, in noisy environments. Yes. My grandmother, who is a youthful 92 has a hearing aid. And, you know, even when it's turned all the way up, the amount of static that she gets out of it and still the trouble that she has hearing us when we're talking with her is substantial. And this isn't even to mention just the sheer benefits of this technology when you're traveling abroad or speaking with someone who doesn't speak the same language. Right. Absolutely. Not only translating, I mean, something that you said that really stuck out was intonation, right? Because I don't know if you watched the Korean drama that swept the world some months ago, Squid Game. Mm -hmm. I did. (laughs) There was an article that was very well read after the series came out. And it was like, here are some of the things that you might not have even caught on if you weren't from Korea or a native Korean speaker. Because even if you have the subtitles, there are going to be certain intonations or similar to what you were talking about, where if you're reading a book, you'll get contextual information, you know, oh, this was the battle of blah, blah, blah. And and then something might float over it. Similarly, if someone in something like Squid Game is referencing a person, a place, a myth, etc., something like this super sight technology will not only translate what they're saying, but give you the contextual clues, whether it's intonation or the history of the thing they're referencing, or, you know, just a cultural colloquialism that you wouldn't be able to get with a simple text translation. It's not my field of expertise, but when I was at Warby Parker, I was head of a research group that was looking at all of the sensors that you could put into glasses to mm-hmm. both help people hear something better by like putting little essentially AirPods kind of in the temple of the glasses, kind of near the ear point, you know, very directional speaker that's pointing at your ear with a microphone array across the front, but also being able to sense things about the person who's wearing the glasses, like biometrics about, are you confused? Like, are you in the zone? Like, are you engaged? And that kind of emotional affective feedback loop is going to be amazing for being able to kind of conditionalize what you show people if you knew that they were confused or if you knew that they were a learner and they weren't engaged. And maybe you could help them by explaining something in a way that's more visual or explaining something in a way that gives them another approach to the same idea. So I think that's another benefit of wearables and that has huge potential is to sense some of these things like electrodermal activity or reading people's brainwave states and making that part of the service, you know, part of the feedback loop of that changes what you'll see or how much notation you get as you're walking through the foreign city. And this actually segs very well into another very relevant topic that you talk about in the book, because you know, a lot of what we've been talking about in this discussion, if we're taking the forest and the trees metaphor here, it's like we're talking about, I guess you could say individual trees. This is what SuperSight can do for you in this moment. This is what SuperSight can do for you in this moment. And that's fantastic, right? But one of the things that was really eye-opening for me, and you used an analogy by comparing it to when you, I think, clipped a camera to either your shirt or your backpack, but you recorded your entire day or several days 
and then went back and logged and looked at everything you ate, every interaction you had with people, what their emotional response was to what you were saying, the places you went, and then taking all of that data and imagine having an algorithm that can analyze all of it for you. It takes those individual events, again, that SuperSight can be really amazing at, but gathered together, it creates an entire portrait of a life that can give you amazing clues into your mental and emotional well-being, the mental and emotional well-being of people you care about. Can you talk a little bit about how the kind of totality of all of those things that come together for SuperSight creates an even broader picture that has ramifications for our health? Yeah, I think it was a future casting workshop a few years ago where we were saying, well, what are some trends that we know to be true in the future? And one of them was the falling cost of memory. And then someone said, oh, well, I actually just did the math, the back of the napkin math. And for less than $100 in five years, you'll be able to store a life of audio. Like you'll just be able to have a, a microphone that you wear around all day, every day. And in five years, like storing all of that at pretty high resolution will be about $100. And that just made a lot of people think, wow, like that fantasy of kind of the life log made people think about, well, you know, what's the difference between a photograph that you take because it's volitional, because you want to capture a moment, and a photograph that you take just because you're wearing a GoPro all afternoon? <laughs> and the big difference is the volitional photos are usually highlights because you've thought to take out your camera as opposed to the life logging stream, which is right. This camera that I was wearing would take a photo every 10 seconds, no matter what I was doing, <laughs> you know, even arguing with someone or, you know, in the bathroom or whatever, like we just take a photo every 10 seconds and then store that. And luckily I had a computer vision system that could go through and tag it with these are the people you spent time with. This is the food that you ate. This is how often you ate, <laughs> you snacked. Of the people that were looking at you, this is their facial expression. And you could look at that over time and you could see kind of like your being a little bit down in the dumps or slightly depressed was very much reflected by the people who are looking at you all day <laughs> because we all mirror each other's affect, you know, every time we interact with each other. So there is this really interesting stream once you have cameras that are both pointing towards you and also pointing out into the world that help you understand what you do all day. And it's usually very different than what you think you do all day. <laughs> I learned a lot about, you know, people's perceptions of time are very different. And, you know, sometimes I would think that talking to a student was a very long conversation. And it wouldn't, in fact, was a very short conversation. And sometimes I would feel like I spent a lot of time cleaning up the kitchen, and it actually wasn't that much time at all. <laughs> So I think there's that kind of portrait that can be painted with data across time will, in the same way that Fitbit kind of helps you understand how did you sleep and how much did you move, we'll have a much richer portrait if we choose to look at it. And I can only imagine how it will increase the quality and fidelity of things like medical studies or consumer feedback forms, et cetera, because right now I think you know, just asking someone, you know, like, what did you eat over the last week? Yeah, no one, no one knows. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's one of the most popular and easiest ways for researchers to gather data, but also notoriously one of the most unreliable, because as you've mentioned, our memory of events, even as recent as earlier in the day, are often super faulty. So I can see it having, you know, so many benefits across the board, right? Yeah, but it also becomes kind of scary and insidious, because if you think about... yes. Like other people can tell you're in love, right? <laughs> like other people can tell that you look at someone more often and differently 
even when you can't tell, even when you think you're trying to hide it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so in the same way, eye tracking can be coupled with facial expressions to know that you're interested in certain product categories, even before you would admit that you're you know, shopping for a new piece of luggage. Like you will tend to look at other people's luggage like a few tens of microseconds longer <laughs> than you normally look at luggage <laughs> or whatever it is. And this is already being used by a lot of kind of brand marketers and product developers to, you know, have you put on some eye trackers, walk around a car and like, don't even tell us what you think you like or don't like. Like we can tell, like we can tell that there was a problem with the front grill that didn't really resonate with you, but you really loved the steering wheel and the dashboard design. So if you think about these data streams can be used for kind of subconscious persuasive means as well. And you can either find that exciting or evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can take the same subject and put it in a TED Talk or a Black Mirror episode and totally change the context. Right. Right. One other thing that pops out to me there, and you do touch on this and reference a Black Mirror episode in your discussion of it, but there's that famous time-worn saying, right? Time heals all wounds. But I think if we were to be more accurate, the real saying would be memory attrition heals all wounds, you know, because as a painful event gets further and further away from us temporally, it becomes fainter, right? Like the contours of the event become softer. It fades away either because we're voluntarily trying to forget it or just involuntarily over time, it atrophies. And you do discuss this, the consequences of having a memory that never fades, being able to watch a fight that you had with your spouse or your boss chewing you out on a Tuesday five years ago, being able to access that over and over and over again, in some ways feels like it almost goes counter to how our very brains are programmed to protect us. Right, right. Yeah, there was just a piece about this in the New York Times today about kind of our memories of COVID and how those deservedly should diminish over time, you know, for our own mental health, they need to. And so, yeah, like this is automatic ruminating technology, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like if you're obsessed with how that conversation went, you could replay it and probably shouldn't. But I do think that, you know, we will selectively allow a life log to hopefully mature in the same way that our memories, Mm. our memories do, which is to kind of save the rosy visions of the vacation and forget the parts that we needed to forget. (laughs) Yeah. Forget the turbulence on the plane, on the flight to Hawaii. (laughs) It sounds like a service. Yeah. Like a service that some entrepreneur (laughs) should figure out how to, how to do like a curated memory. I guess Google Photos is already doing that in a lot of respects. Like they're pretty good at, you know, looking through your trove of way too many hundreds of thousands of photos and like pulling out the highlights of certain people over the years and curating it with nostalgic music. Yeah, yeah. And with better technology and ever-present cameras and sensors, the ability to create that nostalgic package on demand, it's only going to improve. I mentioned at the start, you're currently the CTO of Home Outside. Yeah, I want to tell you about that. I'd love to ask you about it. You met the company's founder, Julie Moir-Mazervi. Am I pronouncing her last name correctly? Yes. You met her at an MIT pitch competition. And MIT is fairly well-known for its brilliant students. So What stood out about Julie's endeavor? What stuck with you and ultimately led to you joining her company? Well, I was at Warby Parker at the time, and we were just working on a service that allows people with an iPhone X. The iPhone X has this camera inside that looks at your face and unlocks the phone with your face. And it does that by casting this array of infrared dots against your face, and then it studies the pattern of those dots and is able to kind of read the terrain of your face. 
And so we were using that for a virtual try-on experience. So we could put super realistic glasses and show them on your face. So you would say, oh, wow, I look great in those. And they fit the nose bridge height and the pupillary distance of my face. I think I have the confidence to buy those. And she is a landscape designer and has written a number of books on kind of how to use the yard, your front yard and backyard in ways that people really love, you know, for fire pits, for gathering places in the front yard, like a porch swing or actually furniture that's out in the front yard that make the neighborhood much more social because people feel comfortable hanging out or more likely to hang out. And so I was really excited about how could I do kind of virtual try on but not for your face terrain, but instead for your landscape terrain, like for the real terrain of the world. And there was another company called Modzi. Do you know Modzi? I'm unfamiliar with it, no. Okay, so Modzi is a like virtual design service where you take a picture of your living room and then they send it out to designers and the designers like erase all the furniture that's in the room and show you a new collection and you're like, whoa, that looks amazing. And then if you buy the couch in the mirror or whatever, they make money. And I thought, well, we could do what Modsy is doing with AI, except nobody has to take any pictures because Google has already taken all the pictures we need. Ah. We took Google satellite view photos and street view photos. And then basically we're using a game engine. It's called Unreal Engine. It's the same thing that so many like first-person shooters and <laughs> that kind of thing are built with. And we're basically recreating neighborhoods, like whole neighborhoods. There are 53 million homes in America with yards. And so we're rebuilding all of that with the Google Street View photos and then analyzing that, scoring it, and then putting in a shade tree in the southwest corner so you don't spend as much on air conditioning in the summer. And we're putting in natural pollinating bushes so we don't kill all the bees. And we're constricting the lawn space so you don't spend as much on chemicals. And putting in furniture so it's kind of a marketplace for what you would really be much happier with in terms of your home. And it would be much better for the planet. You could capture a lot more carbon. But what's exciting is we're kind of able to do it at scale without anyone's permission. <laughs> so, so we don't have to worry about getting you to like take a picture and send it into a service and trust the service and put in a credit card. But instead, we're just taking all this data and then sending people a picture of their newly designed landscape, their new kind of home outside. That's the name of the company. And with that, people are like, wow, I couldn't have imagined that it could look this good. And so to me, that's kind of the final gift of Supersight is this imagination engine. You're able to see what a landscape designer could see in their mind's eye, but you, because you're just not trained in that, you couldn't otherwise imagine it until you have this clairvoyance, this ability to kind of see the world anew and walk around in it in a really immersive experiential way. So you can tell I'm really ex I'm excited about the project. And we've attracted partners like Wayfair for furniture, Scott's for lawns, this company called Fast Growing Trees, which will like ship you trees that you can plant yourself. We're talking to Lowe's. So all these companies that like sell the subject of our imaginings <laughs> are very interested in this because they see these kind of 3D configurators as the kind of the future of e-commerce. Slightly tangential, but are you familiar with the company Flash Forest? No. You describing this technology made me think of the intersection between what they're working on and, and what you're working on. It's a Canadian reforestation company that uses UAV technology, automation, and ecological science to regenerate ecosystems at scale. Hmm. They'll look at you know maps and try and figure out where needs to be reforested. 
And then using drones, they can deposit thousands of seeds at once, depending on the needs of any given environment. Oh, that's awesome. And so it's just interesting to see how all these different things are coming together and being used in so many fascinating and helpful ways. Yeah, I mean, drone technology to me is like one of the most, I mean, in addition to AR projection technologies, like drones take it up even another level in terms of fusing these technologies of real-time control systems and cameras and LIDAR and, well, a payload in the case of disseminating seeds. But it's just like the ability for drones to do jobs that cost a lot more money to do search and rescue, for example, or seeding or throwing life jackets to surfers that are too far out at sea. Yeah. Like so many cool applications for drones. So many. You know, and I would kick myself if I didn't ask you this, because I don't often get the chance to potentially peek behind the curtain of an industry that I don't work in. So, you know, you've been in this space for more than 30 years now. I imagine you've seen, because I've experienced this with some of my friends in the creative industry, you know, where someone will have a brilliant script, you know, that never takes off, never gets bought, or a brilliant film, or a short film, or a commercial project, right? That you look at it, you read it, you watch it, and it's just brilliant. And then it doesn't take, you know, in the market for whatever reason. And I imagine that over the decades, you've probably seen so many brilliant ideas, either in the marketplace or in their foundational stages at places like MIT, Mm -hmm. that fail to catch fire with the public. So in your experience, David, what is the force or what are the forces that are separating the products or concepts that blew you away but didn't catch and the ones that did gain traction? Because, I mean, I imagine it's a confluence of multiple factors, but I'd love to hear your behind-the-scenes take on your experience. One of the problems with going to the Media Lab and teaching at the Media Lab is you're in a place where you think that the future, it's going to happen like tomorrow. <laughs> like the quality of the demos and the quality of the things that are prototyped there are such that you believe it's happening, you know, in the next months or maybe next year, but it seems compelling and inevitable. And usually you're wrong about the timing. The I think Alan Kay, the famous Apple educational enthusiast who did one of the first demos, which was like before the laptop, what was it called? Anyway, Alan said, don't confuse a clear view with a short distance. Oh, So just because you can see from one mountain to the next mountain doesn't mean like you can get there in 15 minutes or 45 minutes, you know, like, so I think there's this clarity of what will be and what should be and what needs to be. And then oftentimes what entrepreneurs get wrong. And the reason that ideas don't catch is the industry isn't ready or consumers aren't ready for that idea. And I mean, I've been wrong. I was wrong about photo sharing. I was like patented uploading photos to the web and inviting your friends to private views of those photos in like 1996. And it didn't really take off until, I don't know, when was like Instagram was bought for a billion dollars in, I don't know, 10 years later or something. So yeah, like I thought that was going to be game changing, but like digital cameras were too expensive. There weren't cameras and phones at that point that were compelling. It was expensive to upload photos. Like there are a whole bunch of reasons why my timing was off and wrong. And so that's my answer to like why do, especially in technology innovation, like they're just, there are certain thresholds, I think, like either price point thresholds or ease of use thresholds or just kind of cultural ripeness and readiness 
that have to happen before something really takes off. And what's kind of frustrating about that is that these are kind of exponential in the same way that like when things go viral, there are a lot of things that could have that didn't. And these kind of snowball exponential effects need to kind of all collude at the same time in order to actually escape Earth's gravity, you know? <laughs> yeah. What you said just there harmonizes so well and, and unsurprisingly with what recent guest Jason Crawford, the founder of the nonprofit Roots of Progress, who was also in the tech industry for a couple decades, when talking about why certain technology historically came around when it did. We talked briefly at the start of his episode about why the bicycle could really only come about in the 1800s, the late 1800s, and not, say, the Roman Empire, which was a pretty advanced civilization for the time. Mm. And just like you said just now, even then, it's like even just having the idea to make the bicycle, if you don't have the proper metals that you can create, if you don't have mass manufacturing, doesn't matter if the idea is great or not. If all those different factors come together to make it, you don't have anything. Yeah, and that's one of the concerns I think that a lot of people have about augmented reality is the vision for all of these things that we'd like to see, that we will be able to see with AR. We felt like we've been kind of on the cusp of this for insiders in the industry for like about 10 years. <laughs> so when I go to CES and when I go to the Augmented World Expo and as I talk to these companies like Vuzix and you know, smallish companies in Rochester, New York, or Enreal, who has some glasses that are now like decent, and they're out at Verizon stores, select Verizon stores, and they're at a $500 price point. And it's the same, actually a better tech than what Microsoft HoloLens has launched two years ago for $3,500. Wow. All of the optics, the availability of 3D content, the kind of interaction modalities, voice and gesture... Like all of those things seem to be colliding. And I think the wave is on the cusp of breaking, but we should talk again in a year. And <laughs> I'd love to. You know, I think technology is a lot like, you know, how Ernest Hemingway once described bankruptcy, right? You know, very slowly and then all at once. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, this brings me to just one last question I'd like to ask in this segment before we just move on to future casting, which I would love to touch on before letting you go. I asked a few close friends of mine, I said, hey, I'm going to be speaking with David Rose about augmented reality. Do you have any questions? And one of them said, speaking to your point, he was like, why should I care? Because he was just thinking about, you know, the augmented reality we've been promised for so long and how long it has taken to kind of coalesce. But my dad really got it. We talked about it for a while yesterday, and he came up with a question that was summarized in a way that really kind of haunted me because I was thinking about it while I was reading your book and you do touch on it. But his question was, and I'll expand on this a bit, what do we become when there is little left for us to do? So like I'll use my mom's career as an example, right? It's adjacent to what you're doing with Home Outside. So she's an interior designer. She's very good at her job, has a great reputation in the industry, super talented woman. You can tell I admire her. But I would imagine that folks like her across all industries, right, who've acquired decades of experience to get to where they are and maintain the reputations they have. And again, this could apply to any industry. Once you have an expert, a human expert, train an algorithm or a series of experts train an algorithm, and then the algorithm, you know, the machine learning is available, that expertise is available to millions or billions of humans instantly in their super site wearables or plane projectors what happens to the experts who trained it? 
Because in this regard, it seems like there's like a duality here, right? Like Supersite is a potential absolute miracle for consumers. But what happens to the people who were once providing those services that Supersite supplants? And what do we do with that? Because I think obviously with any new technology, there's always that fear, right? You know, like the car was the death of the horse and buggy, but this seems like it will touch so many industries and potentially so quickly once the technology is truly matured. How do we prepare for that? I think you're giving AI kind of too much credit because my answer is we all level up. Like did Khan Academy that has so much great math content and econ content, like how many teachers has that put out of a job? Nobody. My feeling is that these AIs, like the home outside, envision your new landscape, like it's not going to be very good. Like it's going to be compelling in terms of like the trees are going to be beautiful and blowing in the virtual wind and you're going to see bees on the bushes and that kind of thing. But that's going to get somebody more interested in hopefully spending more time outside, getting their hands dirty. But that will lead to, you'll be more likely to buy a landscape professional service after experiencing this. Like, it's not going to satiate you. Like, in the same way that, like, wearing a Fitbit gets you more interested in thinking about your body and thinking about movement and thinking about wellness, and that probably gets you more interested in, that's probably a gateway drug to meditation. And once you do some meditation online, you're more likely to go on a retreat and you're probably more likely to hire a trainer for a hundred bucks an hour. You know, your, your mom's problem in terms of lead generation for her home decoration business, I'm just imagining, is she needs to get people interested in home decor. And HGTV is doing a good job of that, but it's not like <laughs> making everyone an expert. Right. The people who are, become interested then become more interested and are more likely to level up and seek out your mom's expertise. And she'll probably get better at what she does because she'll have more savvy clients. Right. I see what you're saying. So it's not necessarily super sight and its technologies wouldn't necessarily be a supplement for, say, taste or years in the field. Like, let's say it raises the average person's expertise in any given subject from, let's say, zero to two, but it could raise an expert from a nine to a 10 or something, and that everyone gets raised at once. Am I reading that right? Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. I'd love to briefly talk about future casting because are you familiar with Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert? Yes. Ah, brilliant. Yes. I came across his TED Talk years ago, one of his TED Talks, The Surprising Science of Happiness. And in his book, Stumbling on Happiness, he talks about how human beings are often so bad at predicting the future because we're so limited by what we're experiencing in the present. And I loved that phrase you quoted earlier, don't confuse a clear view with a short distance, because that's very in line with the errors that Gilbert says that we make. In chapter nine, entitled Envisioned, you write, quote, through storytelling, Supersight can bring the future to the present and help us act on it now, end quote. I'd love for you to just briefly expand on that. Obviously, we're trying to condense a lot into a little period of time, but if you could just briefly touch on how the technology of Supersight can bring what oftentimes would happen years or even decades in the future to us in the present so we can plan for it now. Well, the story that I tell in the ninth chapter is about kind of a biological evolution that I learned from a biologist named Malcolm McIver at Northwestern. And he has something called the Buena Vista hypothesis that our ancestors, the reason that we were motivated to get legs was because of eyes. 
Like it was the fish, the Tikalik, who could see, who could shine your eyes above the water, who could put your eyes out of the water, that got you interested even in seeing a bug on the shore and crawling up and eating. So it was so kind of eyes that gave us strategy or a planning ability. And so I take this in the book as kind of one of the things that we need these new evolved eyes that we're getting with this technology. The capability that we most need is the ability to project forward and see the future because we don't just need more visual acuity, right? <laughs> like we can see the next McDonald's pretty clearly. <laughs> like we don't we don't need we don't need to see our prey any more clearly. But we have a big myopia when it comes to understanding the consequence of the actions today on our future self, whether that's in what we eat or how we spend money or how we think about the climate and. Being able to see the future of a city or the future of a landscape is something that would absolutely change how we become motivated to make decisions and how we prioritize our budgets. And so that's really the capability that this technology will be most useful for is to be able to extrapolate and see into the future. Yes. And I find that so interesting. I could see this, you know, either through planes of projection or wearables, like because I oftentimes have a real problem with late night snacking. Mm, me too. Right? But <laughs> if every time I was going to reach for that, you know, bag of chips at 8 p.m. because I was bored, I could look at myself in the mirror and see what I would look like if I kept doing that for the next month. You know, I could see the contours around my body. Yeah, I think what would be more motivational, I think would be to maybe would be the inverse, which is you're working out in front of the mirror and, and like if you keep it up in yeah. four months, you could look like this. Look at those biceps, yeah. <laughs> so I think like these kind of fun mirrors are powerful, both for the downsides and the upsides. Absolutely. And in regards to climate change, if your augmented reality glasses could show you coastal erosion that would ordinarily take 100 years to manifest, but you could see the ramifications of it as you took a stroll along the beach, it just seems like this kind of technology would have real political ramifications around things like collective action, which is so difficult when consequences are often so far in the future. Absolutely. Yes. So as we've been talking, you tell me if I'm on base or not. I feel like I asked you about a kind of a thematic line that took you through your career. And if I'm to draw one between, let's say, your interest in enchanted objects and super sight, to go back to the well of Steve Jobs anecdotes, really famous one was in 1980, he talks about how the personal computer is a bicycle for the mind, mm. a man-made invention that allows humans to effectively and efficiently do things that traditionally would take us much more time and energy, right? So, you know, a personal computer allows you to, in 1980, allows you to make a calculation, write down a Word document, et cetera, much faster than if you were writing it by hand, let's say, in the same way that a bicycle takes less energy to travel a mile and you can do it more quickly than if you were walking or running. But I want our listeners to focus in on that metaphor because I think a decent amount of people, when they hear it, focus on the wrong thing. When I look out at the tech world, I think too many people focus on the bicycle in that image. Historically, and even today, they focus on the bicycle, they focus on the product, you know, the speed, its stats, what the tires look like, how many gears it has, etc., and I think that Jobs' metaphor is not about the bicycle, but the human riding it. And I think you see where I'm going here. It's like the best bicycle should fade from the mind as it's being ridden in the same way we're not thinking about the fit of our shoes every time we take a step. Mm. So when I was watching that TEDx talk and you talking about magical objects or when I was reading Supersight and reading the hypothetical future you were painting for me, I think your goal, if I can trace it correctly 
is for people to forget about the bike. You've honed in on a problem that I think is really prevalent with our phones today. Because when I look around and I'm walking down the street, everyone's looking at their damn bike. No one's present anymore. No one's making eye contact. They're staring at the very product that is supposed to make our life easier, and yet it's sucking us away. And when I hear you talk about enchanted objects, when I hear you talk about SuperSight, even though it is a lot of technology assisting us, it does seem to be all focused around the locus of making us more present rather than taking us away from one another. Am I on base here? Absolutely. Because I do think that's a real problem with technology today. I do too. I do too. I mean, I think the best glasses fit just like shoes fit so that you forget you're wearing them. Yes. Right. (laughs) So, yes. And sunglasses too. And I do think that taking all the information that used to be in phones and on the internet and spatially positioning it and layering it over the world, I think inevitably will make us more present in the world and will make us more attuned to and fascinated by and curious about and lifelong learners about what's so amazing about the world around us. I certainly hope so. I've been to too many social gatherings where, you know, I decide I'm putting my phone in my pocket and I'm not touching it. But if everyone else doesn't make the same agreement, I sometimes feel like I'm at a party alone. So for the final question, David, you know, for those of us who are interested in following the future of SuperSight, you know, who are interested and excited about this new technology, what can we do in the immediate term? Because we don't know exactly when all these technologies are going to coalesce and come together to create the seamless future we're talking about now. But it is coming together in bits and pieces in the apps and the software and the physical wearables that we've been talking about during this episode. So when it comes to people who want to follow the future of something like SuperSight, in addition, of course, to going to the website, where do we go next? Yeah, that's a good question. I kind of believe both in being a kind of voracious tester of all new things. My family will tell you, like any new consumer-grade robot or camera system or home voice agent, like I want to try all of them because I want to have an opinion about what its powers are and what its failings are. So one advice is like, before you have an opinion, live with the stuff and, and let that be kind of your guide in terms of your criticism. And then be a prototyper. Pull together either a team at your school or a team at work, a hackathon kind of situation at work. MIT is doing a hackathon next week on immersive technology. I'm participating in that. There are all kinds of healthcare hackathons. I host a lot of workshops that are like one day that involve a lot of learning and envisioning and sketching. And I really feel like it's important to kind of take the bull by the horns and dive into being a maker and not kind of waiting for these services and futures to come to you, but really invent it. And you're going to get things wrong and your intuitions are going to be wrong the first time around. But through that experience of making, you're going to understand the capabilities of these mediums and make things that are useful and that are brilliant. Like that's what I see in my students. And that's what I see in startups is you don't get it right the first time, but with iteration, you can really make magical things. And so I encourage people to be the makers and not wait for the technology to kind of arrive on our doorstep. Beautifully said. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to speak with me and our listeners today. It's such a pleasure to speak with someone who so eloquently and persuasively communicates passion and excitement about our technological future, which I think you do so brilliantly in in SuperSight. 
but it's also such a pleasure to speak with someone who's actually doing it, who's out there making the future real. So thank you so much for your time, David, and thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. This was a blast. Tune in April 26th for a conversation with musician Joe Sumner. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.